Thanks for listening and subscribe today for our new Substack newsletter. That's Michael Medved's context, placing today's big events in the unique perspective of our past and our future. Go to michaelmedved.substack.com and sign up today for my uncensored take on current controversies. And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day and a great nation, despite the fact that the day began badly. Uh, Nassau County authorities in New York State, that's out on Long Island, uh, responded to a hoax bomb threat at the home of uh, the judge, uh, Arthur Angeron, who's presiding over the civil fraud trial of Donald J. Trump, which wraps up today. Uh, President Trump already delivered his own closing statement to go along with the closing statement that he was paying his lawyers to deliver in his name. He made his own statement at the trial before he was cut off. But a spokesman for the Nassau County Police Department confirmed that there had been a swatting incident. That's a fake threat intended to prompt a mass police response at the home of Judge Angeron who is currently hearing closing arguments in Mr. Trump's case. Two people with knowledge of the matter said that the threat involved a bomb and that the bomb squad came to the house. The uh, threat came the morning after Mr. Trump again attacked uh, Justice Angeron on Truth Social, his social media site, saying that the judge and the New York Attorney General uh, who brought the fraud case were trying to screw me. Uh, that's uh, great, <laughs> great moments with Mr. Trump. It's it's so uh, interesting here. I, I was thinking about this today with President Trump's remarks at his trial, which, of course, were not broadcast because it's a trial, but they took fairly careful notes. And it was basically just attacking the judge and the system and saying that he's an innocent man. And I was remembering... When I was a kid, I I had a thing about World's Fairs. Uh, When I was really a kid, my parents took me out to the, uh, with my younger brother, to the Seattle World's Fair in 1962. And it was the first time I'd ever come to Seattle, and actually I've always had a a real affection and affinity for this particular corner of the country where I've chosen to make my life and raise my children. Uh, That began with the Seattle World's Fair. Two years later, in the summer of 1964, there was the New York World's Fair, which uh, was taking place in Queens. And it was also incredibly cool, and I was really thrilled to be there. I was in high school at the time. And... uh, they had the debut of a an attraction that later made its way to Disneyland, but it made the debut in that World's Fair. It was called Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. And they had created a robot, basically, of Abraham Lincoln, audio-animatronic. And it was really, really impressive and super. And the, the, the movements that they had... And the way that they did Lincoln's voice, not going for what a lot of people do, they deepened the voice. Uh, Lincoln had a high-pitched voice. He was a, a tenor, 
uh, in in the way he spoke. In any event, and it was magical, and people could come there and believed. Gosh, this is probably as close I'm ever going to get to uh, uh, the real Abraham Lincoln, except in heaven, right? Um, in any event, I was thinking about that was great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Imagine if there's a future theme park and they install great moments with Mr. Trump. Um, <laughs> which which great moments will they include? Will they include his uh, speech today? Uh, it was only a few minutes. Uh, at the trial for fraud, or would it be his his speech on January sixth before the people did what he had asked them to do, to march up to the Capitol building to protest the election? I don't know. Would it be any of Trump's remarks from last night when he appeared on Fox? He was asked about. A new report uh, drafted by Democrats, of course, in Congress, but a new report about the money, millions of dollars that he made as president uh, by renting rooms in his hotel and other sources of money, uh, much of that money, most of it coming from China. And uh, Saudi Arabia was the second leading source of money for President Trump. Here's what President Trump said about it last night on the Fox uh, News town hall. Uh, clip 20. You know, there is this report, House Democrats, uh, documents that say that nearly $8 million in payments to your businesses from foreign governments, China included, Saudi Arabia, while you were in office. They say Article 1 of the Constitution says you can't accept money from foreign governments while president. Would you pledge to divest from your business in a second term as other presidents have done? So that's what, I, they're, that's what yeah, they're reporting. I own hotels all over the I don't get free money. Somebody rents a hotel room, et cetera, et cetera. Much money I gave back. In fact, I didn't have to do it. You know, George Washington was a very rich man. People don't know that. In his essentially White House, which wasn't built, but they had an office, he had a business desk and he had a country desk right next to each other. You're allowed to do that. I didn't do it. I put everything in trust. And if I have a hotel and somebody comes in from China, that's a small amount of money. And it sounds like a lot of money. That's a small. But I was doing services for that. People were staying in these massive hotels, these beautiful hotels, because I have the best hotels. I have the best clubs. I have the best clubs. I have, the, I have great stuff. And they stay there and they pay. I don't get $8 million for doing nothing like Hunter. I don't get, I don't get $500,000. I don't get $500,000 for doing a painting. It's not a bad idea, I guess, if you can get away with it. Okay, um, look, let me say that <laughs> President Trump bringing up the comparison with Hunter Biden. Um, Hunter Biden is a recovering uh, drug addict and extremely shady individual. And yes, I think that's a probably a... Uh, a rhetorical flourish that uh, makes sense to try to have people compare his suitability for high office to that of Hunter Biden, who, to the best of my knowledge, never run for anything. He's run from a lot of things. Uh, President Trump also spoke about NATO when he was asked about that with the questions at his town hall. Clip 27. Would you be committed to NATO, for example, in a second Trump term? Depends if they treat us properly. Look, NATO has taken advantage of our country. The European countries took advantage of, uh, I want to use the word starting with an S, but I don't want to do it because I see some young, 
very good looking children in the audience and I assume they're watching on television. But they took advantage of us on trade and then they took advantage of us on our military protection. Of the 28 countries at the time, only eight countries were paid up. We were paying the difference. And I went to him, I said, if you don't pay, we're not going to protect you. And they said, do you mean that? I said, I mean that. And the next day, billions of dollars poured into NATO. The reason they have money right now to prosecute what they're doing with helping Ukraine is because of the money I got them. So, you know, peace through strength. Okay, that simply is not true. And he's been fact-checked on that a great deal. The countries of NATO made independent decisions, including countries like Germany, which has not. And when he talks about paying up, it makes it sound like it's a fund for NATO. That's not what the issue is. The issue is getting each country in NATO to pay at least 2% of their uh, gross domestic product toward defense. And it's their own defense. It's not paying for NATO troops. Because when you serve in NATO expeditionary uh, forces or any of it, you remain troops from Poland or Lithuania or France uh, and uh, though even though you are on a NATO mission. And the idea which, by the way, we there has been progress on, and the progress has continued in the Biden era, uh, the, the progress of getting more of the countries to pay their share of uh, their own economy to their own defense establishment. One of the other bits of progress in the world is that Japan, uh, which had been prevented from... Uh, anything but the most defensive kind of uh, national security arrangements has been spending more on its own military. Uh, We will be right back with uh, some of the highlights and lowlights. We're going to be speaking to Arthur Brooks about uh, the idea of optimism and positivity and uh, basically uh, happiness as a tool for political leadership, which was not in evidence of deployment last night (laughs) in the Iowa Drake University uh, debate between uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. And uh, again, uh, it, it was extraordinary because they began the debate and they had such a great opportunity uh, to look classy and inclusive and likable, which is an important thing for people who are running for president to try to to focus on. And I'll tell you why. Because you live with the president of the United States. Honestly, it's like when you're voting for someone for president, you are inviting them into your head. You are inviting them into your head for at least four years if they win. 
And uh, the the idea that you want to spend time with people who are right out nasty. When I talk about the opportunity they had, Chris Christie had just given a remarkable speech, and I think it will be remembered in history for that, withdrawing from the campaign. Uh, he has a certain amount of support, particularly in the state of New Hampshire, which is coming up in, uh, what is this, like 10 days from now. And... Uh, you want to go out, let Christie go out with some warmth, some praise of him, some uh, recognition that he has a lot of voters who you want to come over to your side, whether you're Nikki Haley, who will probably have the best shot of getting those voters, or if you're Ron DeSantis. But they didn't do that. Uh, they didn't also have a, a single credible, positive thing to say about each other. Even though these are the two non-Trump survivors. And they treated this, like when you say survivors, like the the television uh, reality show, as it's called, Survivor, uh, where they're trying to force the other party off the island. And uh, at the very beginning, rather than talking about how honored they were and, and how uh, maybe even saying something about the other candidates who have participated in other debates and uh, how much uh, you've appreciated them and what it shows about the strength of the Republican Party, et cetera, et cetera, none of that. Uh, what you had uh, was uh, basically... Uh, uh, Nikki Haley saying that Ron DeSantis is a liar and Ron DeSantis saying, now you're the liar and uh, basically insulting each other in a petty and childish way. Uh, at least Nikki Haley got one pretty good line about that. Uh, when um, uh, Ron DeSantis had accused her of uh, doing the bidding of her donors, well, she had a, a response and uh, a, a turned it into something that she did 14 times in the course of the debate, which is to ask people to go to the DeSantisLies.com website. Uh, listen, this is Clips of uh, 16. Well, I think this is a time that we know that we need a new generational leader. We have watched our country be in disarray. We see the world on fire. And we need someone who's had executive experience. I've been a two-term governor that took a double-digit unemployment state and turned it into an economic powerhouse. I was at the U.N. I dealt with Russia, China, Iran every day. Um, but you're going to find out tonight that there's going to be a lot of Ron's lies that have happened. There are at least a couple of dozen so far that he's done. So what we're going to do is rather than have him go and tell you all these lies, you can go to DeSantisLies.com and look at all of those. There's at least two dozen lies that he's told about me, and you can see where fact checkers say exactly what's going to happen and exactly why it's wrong. So it will cover the fact that he's only mad about the donors because the donors used to be with him, but they're no longer with him now. And that's because he's upset about the fact that his his campaign is exploding. You're going to see the fact that he has switched his um, policies multiple times, and we'll call that out tonight. But every time he lies, Drake University, don't turn this into a drinking game because you will be overserved by the end of the night. And uh, then DeSantis uh, had his own response. This is clip 12. 
this is interesting because uh, you can actually go to rondesantis.com because Nikki Haley has this tactic. If you uh, hold her accountable to her record, first she'll say, I never said that. Well, one good rule of thumb, if she says she's never said something, that definitely means she said it. And then she'll say, you're lying, you're lying. That means not only did she say it, but she's on videotape saying it. And so we have all the greatest hits. The reality is uh, Nikki Haley is not somebody that has been willing to stand in and fight on behalf of conservatives. You know, she ran for governor saying she was going to do universal school choice and she caved to the teachers union. She didn't deliver that. In Florida, I delivered the largest expansion of school choice in the history of the United States. I beat the teachers union. And you know what the results are? When she was governor of South Carolina, she was rated 50th in education, dead last. You know where Florida is under my watch? Number one in the nation. Your response, uh, the response was back and forth and back and forth is uh, negativity. And even at the very end, when uh, Jake Tapper uh, asked that uh, good question, okay, there's been a great deal of negativity. Now, can each of you say something positive about the other party? We will play to you what the underwhelming results were of that effort. Uh, the the fun factor in politics uh, at its very best, and, and this was so true of the Reagan campaign. Uh, one of the things, the Reagan campaign was the first uh, 1980 uh, National Republican campaign in which I participated. And there was just a wonderful, positive atmosphere about it. And real hope for the country and the kind of changes that President Reagan would be. And uh, that isn't even to mention his 1984 Morning in America campaign, where the entire theme was that America is back and rebounding and positive. So what is the role of optimism and uh, positive feeling and happiness, basically, in uh helping to achieve a more effective political leadership and helping to achieve more effective personal relationships. Uh, that's the theme of a new book that is co-authored by uh, Oprah Winfrey and by our guest, the former president of the American Enterprise Institute, a great friend of this show and a great friend off the air too. Uh, Arthur Brooks will be joining us coming up on the Medved Show. Hello, everybody. I want to talk with you about a new consumer website. MichaelMedved.com This is the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, one of our favorite guests of all time, and we always get a terrific response when he's on the air with us, is Arthur C. Brooks, who is a professor at uh, the Harvard Kennedy School and a professor of management practice at the Harvard Business School, where he teaches courses on leadership, happiness, and social entrepreneurship. He's also a columnist at The Atlantic, where he writes the popular weekly How to Build a Life column. Um, Arthur, it's always great to speak to you. Uh, I don't know if you watched any of the uh, debate last night uh, between Nikki Haley and uh, Ron DeSantis, 
but uh, you you write books where you're trying to find a path to happiness. Maybe one path to happiness is not watching any of the debates in the election year 2024. Yeah, yeah, that, that is a definite um, path to happiness. Michael, wonderful to talk to you. I've missed you, and we haven't talked in a little while, but I'm always thinking of you, and so I'm so grateful for your voice. Um, of Thank common you. sense, conservatism, um, which has always steadied me, I have to say. Um, you know, your, your, your intuition is on the money. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is that politics today, particularly now, is, is really all about riling people up and, you know, getting, trying to kind of capture their brain chemistry. And so whether you're talking about a primary debate or a, or a general debate, what they're going to be doing is to try to get people mobilized to feel a sense of disgust and anger toward the people that support the other person. This is a brain capture phenomenon. Look, I teach neuroscience um, around happiness at Harvard University. It's one of the things I talk about all the time. Bad leadership captures people's brains. It makes them feel hostility and disgust and anger and contempt. And this is a bad practice because it leads to really crummy leadership. One of the ways I protect myself is I read coverage of debates after the fact. I look at a couple of clips and I don't watch the whole thing. Well, it was two hours last night of two people who were really angry with each other. And what I was thinking of was in American political history, as you very well know, we have a history of uh, major politicians who describe themselves or were described as the happy warrior. Al Smith was the happy warrior. Hubert Humphrey was the happy warrior. Nobody became famous being the angry warrior. I mean, if you look back at American political history, so the anger of two Republicans, two conservatives against one another uh, is is just uh, depressing, I think, for a lot of people to watch. If you were advising people in in one campaign or another, what's the secret to maybe connecting with the American public, with the voting public, on a more positive level. Yeah, so you, you mentioned a couple of politicians that were known as happy warriors, and, and, and both of them lost, Hubert, hum, Hubert Humphrey and, and L. Smith. But two happy warriors won, most notably Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan, were both known as being Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, Franklin Roosevelt. These were not relentlessly positive. They had times when they actually were critical. And Ronald Reagan, he had some righteous anger about him. But fundamentally, he was a sunny character. Now, what was their secret? The answer was they weren't working in three-day cycles of everything political. They were thinking their political campaigns over the long term. You can be very positive and prosper if you're thinking about a campaign as taking a few months or a year and a half, which is the way that these things actually should work, as opposed to listening to political advisors who are telling you to be as angry as possible and work off the news cycle from minute to minute to minute. And that's what we've done over the past few years. Plus, quite frankly, I don't see anybody right now who's got the skills of somebody like Bill Clinton or especially like, you know, the great Ronald Reagan. <laughs> the sine qua non of political excellence, who the first person that I ever recognized who was conservative. I grew up near you. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, you know, your hometown as well. And I never even knew anybody who voted for Reagan, but I heard him after he won. And I thought, I believe that that man loves me. Why? Not because he was angry and saying I was stupid and evil because I came from a Democrat family. No, but because he wanted me to prosper and to be successful. And that's what we need more of. And it can work if you take enough time. 
And he carried the state of Washington in 1984, which, again, when you look back, uh, I I believe he is the last Republican to have actually captured the state of Washington in a presidential race. Uh, The the secret the secret of um, projecting happiness at the same time that you're projecting compassion and concern for people who may be suffering. Uh, how do you balance those two needs for a political leader? Well, it's a very happy thing to be fighting for people who need you. That is a that is a the kind of struggle that actually should bring out the happiest things in you. One of the things that I find, for example, is that when when I find somebody who's lonely or depressed, the first thing that I recommend to them, my students, for example, is that they go volunteer for others. That doesn't mean that they're angry and and you know foaming at the mouth all the time. They're doing actually what needs to get done. And sometimes that that is a little bit of justified criticism, but fundamentally, it's happy work to be standing up for the people who who need you. That's the first point. But here's an even more important point about it. If you have values that you really think are right and that people need to hear about, your opinions, your 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 political ethics, your morals are something that people should share. You have two choices in the way that you're going to share them. You can share them as a weapon or you can share them as a gift. And, you know, newsflash, if you share your values as a as a weapon with others, they're not going to be beautiful and nobody's going to want to listen to you who doesn't agree with you already. And that's a very important thing that we all need to keep in mind. If you want converse and you want to convince people, you better use your values as a gift. And so you better make it beautiful. Uh, You uh, have made it beautiful in your most recent book. It's called Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. And (laughs) if they had such a thing as a professor of happiness, you would have that title and that job in uh, at Harvard University. Uh, We will talk a little bit uh, further about that in a moment. But I should say that Arthur's new book is co-written by uh, one of the most admired people in America. And she maintains that status uh oprah winfrey how does how does oprah's amazing career work in with what you're writing about well i I didn't know oprah winfrey before we started working together about two years ago and and it turns out that during the coronavirus epidemic she was reading my column in the atlantic which comes out every thursday morning on the science of happiness i mean you never know i mean you you've been you know writing it in the public world for a very long time. You don't know who's listening. You know, it's just if there's 500,000 readers and one might be Oprah Winfrey and sure enough. And then I had a book that came out in 2022, which she read. She gave me a call and said, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I said, yeah, right. And this is Batman. Uh, you know, tell me another one. Turns out it was really Oprah Winfrey. And she, and she said, um, I think that we have the same mission in life. I said, well, tell me more. She said, you're a scientist. You're dedicated to lifting people up and bringing them together using science and ideas. And she said, I work in media. I want to lift people up and bring them together by sharing ideas. What if we share some ideas that we cook up together that are based in science with a big audience? And I said, sign me up. And we've been just thick as thieves ever since, I have to say. Look, she and I don't vote the same way. We haven't had the same set of experiences. No, nothing like that. But we want more love and happiness for more people. We both believe that the United States is the greatest, most upwardly mobile, prosperous, charitable country in the history of the world. We're both patriotic. We both love this country. And we want to bring the the ability to get happier to millions if we possibly can. What an honor it's been to work with her on that mission. 
That's uh, Arthur Brooks. Uh, We will continue the conversation with specific reference to the currently unfolding presidential campaign just a couple of days before the Iowa caucuses. His most recent book, Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier, yes, co-authored with Oprah Winfrey. So what can Americans do to use politics and public affairs and questions of government policy as a source for happiness rather than outrage. Uh, We will get to that and much more with Arthur Brooks here on The Medved Show. Become a MedHead member today for commercial-free shows, commentaries, musings, and the greatest podcast on God's green earth, all at michaelmedved.com. This is the Michael Medved Show. And right here on The Medved Show, we are back with Arthur C. Brooks, whose title is the Parker Gilbert Montgomery Professor of the Practice of Public and Nonprofit Leadership at the Harvard uh, Kennedy School and Professor of Management Practice at the Harvard Business School, where he teaches courses on leadership, happiness, and social entrepreneurship. Arthur, considering your deep involvement with two of the major components of Harvard University, I understand they're looking for a new president. Uh, is that a job you would be interested in? But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always available to consult to anybody who needs advice, I have to say, because, you know, the truth is that what Harvard needs is the same thing that what America needs. You know, we need presidential candidates who want to make America happy again, for Pete's sake. And and we also need people who, who should be thinking about how to make Harvard University a, a place of beauty and happiness on the basis of inquiry, of learning, of disagreement in a civil and loving way. All the great things that, that most people remember about their college education and that we should be able to get back today. And I believe that at Harvard we can. And I kind of think, Michael, that we can do that in America, too. <laughs> what, a, what a great thought. There are a lot of people who in the past have talked about your co-author, your co-author for your most recent book, Build the Life You Want. Your co-author is Oprah Winfrey. Uh, she has no enduring presidential ambitions, does she? No, not that I'm aware of. Certainly, you know, we've that, that has been you know raised a hundred times or a thousand times in the press, and and she's always batted that away. And and you know, well, she should. She has a you know a lot of important work to do outside of that in in the culture. And and I'm kind of glad she's not going to do that because I have a whole bunch of projects I want to do with her as well. And a presidential campaign would be, let's just say, pretty distracting. <laughs> yes, it could be distracting. Okay, to get to this presidential campaign right now, there was a piece by Frank Brunei in uh, the New York Times, which uh, just uh, rang a few bells with me, where he talked about the use of the phrase, the final conflict, which is, by the way, a a phrase that's used in the international Marxist song, the Internationala, uh, and this is the final conflict. Uh, Trump has been saying that repeatedly. And by the way, so has Biden. They have both talked about this as the final conflict, that if uh, we don't win, if I don't win, if our side isn't successful, it's the end of everything. You know, America gets wiped (laughs) out. Why is that such a destructive message for our country? Well, to begin with, it's destructive because it's a lie. 
it's completely untrue. I mean, look, Michael, we have a we have you know a memory that's good enough to go back to 2012 when people were saying this is the most important election in American history. We may or may not have well-run elections after this if unless our guy wins. And this was Romney versus Obama for Pete's sake. You know, I knew tons <laughs> of people who said, "Look, I have an opinion, but it's okay if the other guy wins." Remember the quaint old days when that was the case. And, and every, what happens is that the, the political parties and the political activists who have entirely too much power in this country, if you want to know why everybody's so miserable, it's because activists have control of our political system. And, and what they tell us every single time to whip us up into a frenzy, to get us to, to send $10 checks and to make sure we vote in the primaries and, and scream and yell on social media and make ourselves completely crazy is that they say this is it. You know, Biden says and, and his supporters say if it, Biden doesn't win, that Trump is going to come in with his jackbooted thugs and that's going to be the end. And, and Trump is saying something like the same, or at least his supporters are. And the truth is, it's a lie. It's not true. I got a dirty little secret for everybody, which is America is going to be okay. I might like it better. I might like it less under one president or the other. But the, our system is incredibly strong. Our constitution is totally sound. And this country is going to endure. The uh, At the, his town hall last night, uh, I, it was t- impossible not to notice that uh, Donald Trump seemed to be taking a turn in a more positive direction with his campaign. He had used the term retribution, that he was seeking retribution and that he was going to get even with people. He said, no, no, I'm going to be too busy making America great again to bother with retribution. He sort of put that aside on the back burner. Is that an encouraging development? And uh, the the idea of making America great again, that was a phrase that even the great Ronald Reagan talked about. Uh, what about uh, using, using the term making America sane again? Because that seems to be a theme in your work. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would very much like to see a... I think America is plenty sane. I just think that the politics is pretty insane, especially in in, in, in Washington, D.C. I look all around this country and I see all kinds of good politics and sanity, quite frankly. I mean, I see governors and mayors that are doing a good job in many places around the country. But you're quite right that that, you know, to, to, to talk about making America great again is a good aspiration as long as we know what it actually means. And let's get back to the original coinage of that statement, which you exactly were right about. It was Ronald Reagan who said that in 1980 at the. Detroit Convention, where he was now, now. This is the important part. He was extolling the virtue of immigrants to this country when he said it. He said they remind us of who we are as a people. They have the enthusiasm and the energy. And, and he was talking about making America great again, the way that these people wanted to as well. We have a lot of problems with immigration in this country, but we have to remember that we are a country of strivers. We're a country of ambitious riffraff and once we remember that then we can really work together to try to make this country as great as it can possibly be and i actually believe that we can i actually believe i actually believe that we will i think that things are going to turn over the next five years in a much more positive direction than they've gone before and what's the key element in that? There's a new Gallup poll that we're going to be talking about on the air today. And it's a, a poll that says that uh, they ask people, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the situation in the United States at large? Seventy seven percent 
of Americans of every political orientation say uh, that we are dissatisfied. What's the most right. important thing that the next president, whoever it happens to be, could do to maybe increase the levels of satisfaction of optimism that the country needs? Well, to begin with, the president of the United States has to stop trashing the other side, which is half of the country. And that's what presidents have been doing for years and years and years to say that the people who didn't vote for him or him are ignorant or stupid or evil or who hate America. And that's what really drives down people's optimism about the future of the country is when the leaders of this country are actually talking down the country. And that's really important. Now, the reason I'm optimistic, quite frankly, Michael, is that the sweep of history is actually pretty positive. And I know it doesn't feel that way right now. But if you'll notice, about every 50 years or so, we go through the cycles that we've currently seen. From 1968 to 1973, there was political bombings and unrest and polarization, and contempt and hatred. And, and a lot of people, I remember my father thinking that it was kind of the end of the republic, most likely, and that these elections mattered more than any other. You know, in, in, in early 19, 1973, 1974, exactly 50 years ago from today, there was a belief that we could never be great again. And six years later, Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. We had a conservative president with great values, incredibly optimistic, who built the country more positively, more optimistically, with you know a greater sense of capitalism and national strength and good values than we'd seen in a very long time. That tends to be the, the, the trajectory that we ordinarily see in cases like this, and I think we just might again. And uh, in terms of that trajectory, it, it involves the larger world beyond our borders as well. Uh, do you believe, as many conservatives do, that uh, the United States has a role to play in the world on behalf, say, of the struggle for survival in the Ukraine or the struggle for security and survival in Israel? Of course, absolutely. The, the, the world is a much more dangerous place when the United States is not present. I don't think we're the world's policemen. I don't think that we have to be involved in every single uh, uh, conflict around the world or solve everybody else's problems. But the truth is that the most dangerous world that we could be part of is one in which the United States actually isn't strong. You know, and I travel all over the world all the time. I go to India a lot, for example, for my work. When I'm meeting with public officials, they'll tell me that one of the reasons that that region of the world is so dangerous right now is because it looks like we have a weak foreign policy. Both Democrats and Republicans are stepping back from America's role in the world. In so doing, they create all of these situations where conflict is actually going to be more possible. That's bad for us in all sorts of ways. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I'm, we're a military family. I think, as you know, my son is a Marine sniper. No wow. joke. And one of the things that they're fine, that, oh, it's just wonderful. My son, he's a, he's a patriot. He would die for this country. He would die for every single person listening to us right here. Now, it's important to him. It's important to all of us that we have a role in building a better world because that's what it means to be an American, quite frankly. But also, it's a very practical decision for all of us to want to live in a country that's peaceful and free and prosperous and where the United States can be in the lead economically, not just militarily. And can use uh, the economic factor to help remain and sustain uh, this greatest nation on God's green earth. Godspeed to you, Arthur Brooks. Thank you, Michael. It's wonderful to be with you. God bless you and your family and, and all of our listeners today.
Thanks for listening and subscribe today for our new Substack newsletter. That's Michael Medved's context, placing today's big events in the unique perspective of our past and our future. Go to michaelmedved.substack.com and sign up today for my uncensored take on current controversies.